Our passage today will continue in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. This is the famous chapter about people of faith from past generations, written to encourage people who are struggling with persevering in the Christian life today. This is the third and final week that Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham, who is probably the most outstanding example of faith in the Old Testament, actually in the whole Bible. Hebrews 8, beginning with verse, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. There are many movies and novels written about, say, some country boy finding his way to the big city. But the story of Abraham is about a city boy finding his way out into the country. He was born and raised in Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia in one of the great metropolitan centers of the world. It was known for its architecture and its schools and its literacy and its wealth and its idol worship. God appeared to him there and said, leave this place, your home and your family. Go to a place that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. All the earth will be blessed through you. And hearing that, Abraham then had to be thinking, as he grew in the knowledge of God, of the promise that God had given to Adam and Eve, the first two humans, when in the hearing of Adam and Eve, God had said to the serpent, there is coming a deliverer who will crush your head. And as Abraham thought, the whole world will be blessed through me, it sounds like perhaps this deliverer will come through my line. So the book of Genesis is what tells his story, the first book of the Bible, and we're given his family tree, and after we read about his father and his brothers and their wives, his nephew, and so forth, we read this little verse that now Sarai, his wife, was barren, a barren man to be the ancestor of the deliverer of the world. Abraham, at that time, was aged 75. And so leaving Ur, which would be like leaving New York City today, he went to Canaan not knowing that about 10 years earlier, marauders had swept through and had leveled the place. And by the time he got there, Canaan was mainly grasslands and sparse, except for a few isolated cities. Six more times after God appeared to Abraham in Ur, he appeared to him in Canaan to confirm the promises that he gave men to add to them. In chapter 12 of Genesis, he says, Yes, Abraham, all around you see Canaanites, but I will give you and your descendants their land. In chapter 13, he said, Yes, your nephew Lot has so many sheep, and he has taken the best grassland and left you with the sparser grassland, but look around and walk it. I will give you the entire land as yours. In chapter 15, after some foreign kings had come and taken many people captive, including Abram's nephew Lot, God said to Abram, I will be your shield, your defender, and no the descendant that will come for you will not be from your servant whose son you will adopt. 
This descendant I'm talking about will come from your own body. Later in chapter 17, God said, this covenant that I've made with you, it's going to be an everlasting covenant. It will never end. In chapter 18, God appears to him again. And finally, in chapter 21, Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarai, was born. And they named him at God's behest, Isaac, which means laughter. Because Sarah said, everyone will laugh with me with joy. Because I've had a son in my old age. Sarai was, well, by the time she was Sarah, her, she was 90. And Abraham was 100. And at that time, God said to Abram, your slave girl, with whom you have had a son at your wife's behest, hoping that that would be the heir, send the slave girl and send her son away. I will bless that boy, but he is not going to be the descendant through which all the earth will be blessed like I promised. And now, in chapter 22 of Genesis, God appears to him for the eighth time in his life. The setting is this. After a 25-year wait, Abram and Sarah had a son The local king of the Philistines has just made a peace treaty with Abram out of respect for how strong he's become, and everything is good. And now the story that we read about in Hebrews 11 is told at length in Genesis 22. We will read it almost in its entirety because it's the background of everything we need to know about the faith of Abram. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now when they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand And took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham. Abraham. Here I am. He replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know 
that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. A generation or two, uh, James Boyce, preaching at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, speaking about this passage, quoted from a novelist who had one character say, quote, I don't believe in sacrifice. If the story of Abraham and Isaac is true, Abraham wasn't religious. He was insane. And yet this passage, which has been criticized, particularly by people who don't believe the Bible, as exemplary of primitive religion out of which Judaism grew as if Jehovah at the beginning used to require human sacrifice have totally missed the point. Jehovah, not terribly long after this, gave a law in Deuteronomy that said you must not worship Jehovah your God in the way of these Canaanites because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that I hate. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And in Leviticus, through Moses, God gave this law. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed, for you must not profane the name of your God. Instead, this near sacrifice that never happened was to picture the sacrifice that God would eventually make of himself in love by Jesus Christ dying for us. What made this command so hard for Abraham to obey? Most of the answers to that we can just think instinctively about. <clears throat> he loved Isaac. There are very few people who do not love their children, even when their children go astray. And most parents are delighted when a baby is born, but that is doubly, sometimes almost triply or so. When a baby is born after a long time of barrenness, when they think we simply cannot have a child, and now God gives them a child. And as I said, they had waited 25 years. What made Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac so hard? Well, not only did he love the boy, and not only had he waited so long for the boy, he was torn. Had God changed his mind, who had given him all kinds of promises? I mean, it was clear from this passage that God knew exactly what he was asking from the way he said it. This, this passage is 
marvelously written. Many people, many who are not believers, have said it's one of the finest pieces of literature in the world. And one of the ways it does this is in verse 2. The tension rises in the order in which the author presents what Abraham was asked to do by God. Take your son, God says. No, no, I don't mean the son of your slave girl whom you had in hopes that he would be the heir, not him. No, no, not your son Ishmael who was born to her. Not your servant Eliezer who would become your heir if you hadn't had any boys. No, no, take your son. Take your only son, Isaac. Yes, Abraham had fathered Ishmael, but at God's behest, he had sent Ishmael away and his mother, Hagar, because God wanted Isaac to be the one through whom all the promises flowed. So God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice at the place I will show you. As I said, all the promises that God had given funneled down eventually through this one boy, Isaac. Back in chapter 17, God had said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for all the generations to come. It was clear that Isaac was the one. Now, the poignancy of this story then could not have been greater. Take, for instance, verse 3. After God commanded Abram to do this, it said that Abraham himself cut the wood. He did not farm that duty out to a servant because he couldn't bear to think about it. And as he's taking a saw or an axe to a tree with each stroke, he knows what that wood will be used for. Abram, we know from the book of Genesis in past chapters, has offered numerous burnt offerings to the Lord. He himself has killed an animal, drained its blood, and heard the crackling of the fire. It's poignant because as they were taking the journey, we read in verse 4 that after they came several days, Abram saw the place in the distance. Think about what goes through this man's mind. You know that you see mountains from a great distance. It takes a while to get there. But the whole time, doubtless he's staring at it. He's thinking of it because he knows what would happen. It's also poignant because we read that he said to his servants when he was some way off, You stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go there. And then we read in verse 6, So the two of them went on together. Father and son. He binds his son. The boy taking all the time markers in Genesis must have been about somewhere between age 15 to 18. Abraham is well over a 100. The boy is old enough to resist. And yet, it seems apparent that Isaac did not resist, that Isaac lets himself be bound. How do you see a boy like that die? The outcome, of course, is known to us, but that sometimes ruins a movie or a novel, does it not? In order for this test to be real, Abraham could not have known the outcome. But Abraham obeys. How is it that Abraham came to be able to obey this unthinkable command from God? Well, clearly, he thought. He reasoned. 
And this is one aspect of biblical religion, both of Judaism in the Old Testament and its flowering in Christianity now, that has always been the case in contrast to many religions of the world, and that is that Judaism and Christianity are a thinking man's religion, as the phrase goes. Jesus often said, so what do you think? Let me tell you a parable. And he told it. Or have you never read and considered A, B, and C? He calls us to think. So Abraham, doubtless, had thought this through. James Boyce is especially good on this. A number of things I'll say here come from him. He could have concluded, of course, that God is erratic. God had once promised such and such. But now God has changed his mind. Because God must be fickle. He's this way one year. He's that way another year. And he can't be trusted. But then doubtless, Abraham went on to think, but that's not my experience of him. My experience of him is that he's been faithful in absolutely everything he has said. When he told me some thousand miles away in Ur, I will take you to a land that I will give you. I arrived and I did not know till I arrived that the population would be sparse and therefore the land would be open to me because only recently had it been wiped clean by marauders. And then when God had promised, I will bless you, my goodness, Look at the flocks and the herds that I have. Look at all the silver and gold I have amassed. I have amassed far more having traveled to this out-of-the-spot place of the world than I would have done had I stayed in luxurious Ur. And when God had promised, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, that is, I will protect you and be your God. Well, hasn't God done that for me again and again? I think Abraham reasoned, that Abraham thought, well, my, my nephew Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, when foreign kings came and destroyed that whole valley and took Lot and his family and others away captive, and I chased those kings down with only 300 men, that God gave me victory over them, and I was able to rescue my relatives. My goodness. And when I got in some trouble after famine drove us to go to Pharaoh and I was in real trouble with him. And later, when famine drove me to live with the Philistines, and I was in real trouble with the king of the Philistines, God got me out of both of those situations, and those kings sent me away with more wealth than I had when I, when I came. Obviously, God, over the course of my lifetime, has been my friend. And so while Abraham could have concluded that God had just changed his mind and become willy-nilly and erratic and... Um, unreliable, he instead, it's very apparent, concluded, okay, I cannot conclude that about God. What I can conclude is that I know that I myself am sinful. Genesis mentions several of Abram's sins, two of them being that he lied about his wife being his sister because he was calling her his sister because she was so beautiful. He was afraid that the Philistine king and the Pharaoh would take her into his harem and would kill Abraham for it. Okay, I'm sinful. I know that. And I know that I'm also finite. I don't understand everything that goes on in the universe. And so Abram came to leave this awful conundrum of God promising A, but now commanding what I'll, I don't know what else to call other than the opposite of A, he left the dilemma with God. And that is the essence of true faith, to leave the unsolvable and the unseen with God. Boyce said, what is faith? Faith is believing God 
and acting on that belief. And so Abraham doubtless thought, what is God going to do to remain a God of honor as I obey his command and yet he has promised me a descendancy line through this son? We read that his obedience had been prompt. And Abraham's obedience of God had always been prompt. When God said in verse 2, take your son and sacrifice him, we read in verse 3, so early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey. He did not drag his feet on this. And thus, it seems that Abraham solved this dilemma during those three days that he walked to the region of Moriah. We read in verse 5 that as Moriah came into his sight, but still at some distance, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then, here's the words, we will come back to you. I'm sure you've noticed that if you've read the chapter. How could he say that? The boy and I will come back to you. Here's how he reasoned. I'd like to read a quote Boyce had this from Donald Gray Barnhouse about three generations ago. It's a little bit extended, but I think it gives about the best summary I've seen of the way Abraham thought this through. As Abraham and Isaac had walked for three days through country growing more and more desolate, and at the slow and measured pace of the burdened mule, his mind went round and round the matter. The method of his thought was as follows. God is not a liar. He cannot be mistaken. He told me beyond question that I would have a son. And there that son is walking right in front of me. God has said that this son would be the one through whom he would fulfill all his promises. Therefore, this son must live or else God would be found false. And yet, God commands me to put him to death. Here, humanly speaking, is a contradiction. But I know there is no contradiction in God. There's power in God. There is wisdom in God. There's majesty in God. But there's no contradiction in God. But what am I to do with God's command to sacrifice my son? Since there is no contradiction in God, There is only one answer that my mind, Abraham now, can fathom. God is going to perform a miracle. God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. Do we understand? No one in the history of the world had ever been raised from the dead. But Hebrews 11, written some 2,000 years later, said that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. As Abraham raised the knife, the angel of the Lord, and by it didn't say an angel from the Lord, it said the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament is clearly God himself and almost surely the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate self. The angel of the Lord calls to him, don't lay a hand on the boy. In fact, he calls to him, Abraham, Abraham. (laughs) He's saying, because you know what the name Abraham means if you were here last week, father of nations, father of nations, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now 
I know that you fear God even more than you love your son. Abram sees a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. This ram becomes the offering, and Abram names the place Jehovah will provide. Those words in Hebrew have become rather famous when people make a list of names of God. It's the famous name Jehovah Jireh. And it's the same Hebrew background as the word Moriah. In English, they sound different, but in Hebrew, they sound quite similar. So, in chapter 22, now, in his eighth appearance to Abraham, he says, because you have obeyed me, he repeats the promises he's given before. He confirms them. Your descendants will overcome your enemies. And through you, all nations will be blessed. But now, Jehovah adds, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars, he had already said that, and as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Henry Morris, with a scientific background, has estimated that on a clear night, the human eye can see about 3,000 stars. The amount of stars that can be seen is great, but the amount of sand in the sea is incalculable. Billions and billions and trillions. That's what God added. And then God added one other thing. This time, he says, having given you these promises, I swear, and I swear by myself. Meaning, as the book of Hebrews later tells us in Hebrews 6.13, when God made a promise to Abraham since there was no one possibly greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. When human beings swear, I don't mean swear in anger, I mean take an oath before God. May God be my witness that I will do this. I put my hand on the Bible. God help me. I will tell the truth in court. The idea is this, that that person is appealing to a higher being, to an all-knowing deity who will hold him accountable on judgment day if he is lying. God is saying, there is no one higher than me. I myself will hold myself accountable and destroy myself if I am lying to you. I swear I will do this for you. And so we come to what this passage is meant to teach us and to teach the readers of Hebrews 2,000 years ago who were struggling to maintain their Christianity because they were being terribly persecuted. One of the things that is clear this passage is saying to us is this. That faith is what makes obedience possible. I would add and say that in real difficulty, only faith is what makes obedience possible. The command to slay his son was unthinkable, except to somebody who had come to trust in Jehovah. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God said to him, because you have obeyed, I will do A, B, and C. It is faith that gave power to Abraham's obedience. In fact, the first use of the word obey in the Bible comes in that verse, and it's linked with Abraham's faith. But the book of Hebrews says it is by faith when Abraham was tested that he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. We can obey because of a desire to be rewarded in heaven. We could obey because our conscience would be bothered if we disobeyed. 
We could obey because we want to look good in front of other people or our children. We could obey because of the memory of a godly grandmother and in her honor will we'll do something good with her in mind. But eventually those motives will break down unless a person believes the things God has said about himself. That God is not only holy, but that he is good. That God not just knows people in general, but he knows me intimately. That God will give us what he asks us to do. That God has promised there is no test that is acceptable what is common to men, but God will not test you beyond what you can endure. Unless we believe that God really loves us, that this test is sent for our good, that he will bring us far greater good as we come through it, and that he can be depended upon in the worst and miserable conditions. Unless we believe those things, we will eventually just give up, drop our sword, and stop obeying altogether. Because human beings tend to think of faith as an emotion, as a religious feeling. But feelings come and feelings go. But trust in the living God is what he has given us to persevere and obey. Faith is believing in God and then acting in obedience on that belief. So faith is what makes obedience possible. James Boyce broke down the idea of the kind of obedience that faith makes possible from this passage. I thought it was well thought through following his outline here. He said, think about it. The obedience that Abraham showed because of his faith was first a prompt obedience. He said, this is characteristic of Abraham. You remember we said that uh, when God told him to sacrifice Isaac, early the next morning he got up and saddled his donkey. But earlier in chapter 21, we read that when God told Abram to send his son Ishmael and Ishmael's mother Hagar away so that he would not get the inheritance Isaac was supposed to, we read early the next morning. Abraham took some food and a skin of water and he gave it to Hagar and sent her and the boy away. And earlier yet, in chapter 17, when God told him to command, when God commanded him to circumcise all the males in his family as a picture of the agreement, the covenant between him and God, we read in 1723 of Genesis, on that very day, Abraham took every male in his household and circumcised them as God had told him. Despite the objections, doubtless, that came from his household, despite the physical pain of it, this man was prompt to obey. This is what faith helps us with. Now, we would not have blamed Abraham if he had delayed because actually God did not set a timetable for him to go and sacrifice Isaac. He could have waited a day, a week, a number of weeks, maybe could have waited months. I don't know. But as boy said... Postponed obedience is usually no obedience. It just is. And Abram, I think very possibly, in order to not give himself time to change his mind, obeyed God immediately in these circumstances. Faith leads to prompt obedience. Boyce went on to say that faith also, in Abraham's case, as it does with us, led to sustained obedience. That is, obedience that kept going over a period of time despite difficulties. You may recall that his journey from Ur of the Chaldees in southeastern Mesopotamia all the way to Canaan on the edge of the Mediterranean was the better part of a thousand miles walking. That entire length of time, Abram did not know exactly where he is going. God just showing him one step at a time, as it were, this direction, that direction, that direction, until he brought him to Shechem in Canaan. 
And then you remember that God had promised him around age 75, actually a little before, you will have a son. And for 25 years, Abraham believes God is going to give him a son, even though his faith at time may have been hanging on by a string. And you recall from our story today that when God said to sacrifice Isaac, not just in any place you choose, but at the area of Moriah, it took him three days. And as you might imagine, three days under those circumstances had to feel like an eternity. Eugene Peterson was a pastor who died a few years ago, but he wrote a book. I've never read it, but the title has always reached out to me. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's exactly what faith enabled Abraham to sustain and what God enables us to sustain through faith. We cannot keep going despite the things that pull at us and that harm us in this life. We cannot keep going following Jesus if we are not convinced that God is wise and God is good and cling to that with our belief. Uh, a final way that Boyce said that the characterize the obedience of Abraham and thus can do so of us is what he called a willing obedience. I really hadn't thought about this, but he said, Abraham could have obeyed gritting his teeth. I'll go, but I'll hate every minute of it. You'd better come through. But instead, here's the tone of Abraham's obedience. He goes several days journey with the, with the two servants and Isaac and himself. And then when he sees Moriah in the distance, he turns to the servants and he says, remain here. And here's the sentence. The boy and I will go and worship and come back to you. In other words, as Abraham is ascending that mountain with his aged frame, aching bones and breaking heart, he is doing so in order to worship God. Because the better part of worship is obedience. But he doesn't anticipate his killing of his Isaac as a harsh act, as Boyce said, wrung from him by a sadistic deity. He saw it as worship. So what do we learn here then? We learn that faith is required for obedience and it's the only thing that can sustain it. And finally, what we learn is that when God tests your faith, Christian, he always has something glorious in mind. And that glorious thing always eventually has something to do with Jesus Christ, with the spread of his kingdom in your own heart and in the hearts of others and in the glories of heaven that you'll experience later. God testing your faith always has something glorious in mind. And that glorious thing always has to do with Christ and his kingdom. Think of it in these ways, for instance. One, Abram did not know the end of the story. He didn't know a ram would be caught in the thicket. He didn't know the angel would call to him and that Isaac would be freed. But we know having the New Testament and having the Old Testament, the end of the story, and looking back, we realize that the account of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 is one of the most moving, let me scratch that, 
in my opinion, it is the most moving picture of Jesus Christ and what he did in the entire Old Testament. Abram didn't know that, but it was glorious. Abram didn't know regarding that his son, I'm sorry, a picture of God testing your faith and doing something glorious, it having to do with Christ, is that his sacrificing of Isaac was a father offering a son. Then he reached out his hand, we read, to slay his son. He did not know the picture of Jesus that this was going to be for millions of people for generations to come. Abram did not know and couldn't see the glory that his son was of the age he was. The fact that his son did not resist being tied and the knife taken to his throat is so pictorial of Jesus in Gethsemane. Father, if this cup can pass, may I not have to drink it. Nevertheless, your will and not mine. And you remember that Jesus in Hebrews 10 quotes the Old Testament about himself and he says, then I said, here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What a picture of Jesus. Isaac was in this case. God had glorious things in mind when he had this event of both a father and the son together participating in a sacrifice. You recall that Abraham left the servants behind and we read these poignant words in verse 6 regarding Isaac and he and the two of them went on together. Here's Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Do we not picture the four gospels and Jesus Christ with the burden of his cross walking up that hill to Golgotha when we read this. We read that Abraham now has a part in the sacrifice too. As Isaac carried the wood, Abraham ties his son. Just like it says of God the Father regarding Jesus in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's, that is God the Father, it was the Lord's will to crush his son and cause him to suffer. The Lord made his life as a guilt offering. What a picture of Jesus weaving all the way through this chapter. And then the fact that the sacrifice was to take place in the region of Moriah. As I said, Moriah, its Hebrew derivative, is that Jehovah will provide. But Moriah, even more than that, the book of Chronicles makes clear that Moriah and its hill is the place where Solomon built his temple, where endless sacrifices were offered so that the sins of others may be paid for and then go free. And in that very vicinity, it was the place where Jesus was crucified and took your sins and mine on the cross. And yet, there is a real contrast, a real difference between the glory that God would bring out of this story of um, Isaac and how it would reflect on Christ. There was a real contrast between Abraham and Isaac on the one hand and God the Father and Christ on the other hand. Because in the long run, Abraham was told to spare his son. But in the long run, God the Father, well, as it says in Romans 8, God did not spare his only son. This is the glory that God has in mind every time he asks 
any Christian at any stage of your life to go through something you do not understand how you can bear. So we ask ourselves these questions at the end. This very day, what hard thing has God been asking of you? And what hard thing is he asking you to do come very soon in the future? Does that hard thing seem contrary to all his promises? And does it seem contrary to all his goodness? We are tempted to follow our finite understanding and what we are tempted to do is to say, the only way I know out of this dilemma I'm in is to violate God's laws. I know, I know I shouldn't, but, but, I, but I need to. I, I just have to. It's the only way things are going to work out and he'll forgive me. Oh, but if by God's grace you have the faith to believe that to obey God instead of take the shortcut you are tempted to take, if you believe that God will bring from that good no matter how long he asks you to sustain that faith or how severe the test is, well, what you will be doing then is listening to the words of Jesus when Jesus said, if you would come after me, if anyone would come after me, Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. This is impossible if you do not believe in the goodness and wisdom of God. But if you believe, nothing is impossible. And if you will follow Christ in this one area that you find so exquisitely difficult, if not in this life, then in heaven, God will show you the glory of, behind what he has called you to. He will reward you in the way that he rewarded Abraham beyond his wildest dreams. And on that day, you will bow in wonder and praise that he sustained your faith. What do you think of these things for a moment before we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the hymn writer who wrote, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Oh, great God, give us the faith to believe these things. Give us the faith to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the one who began our faith, and we'll see it through it to the end. May we consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that we may not grow weak and faint in our minds. We pray, God, today for the people in this congregation, whoever they may be, who are at their lowest ebb, at the weakest of their weakness, who do not see the ability to keep going, who cannot fathom what you were calling them to. Father, sustain them with your faith so they may know the great joy of your well-done, good, and faithful servant and how you will not be a debtor to anyone, but that you will repay richly, pressed down, and overflowing anything that we have left for you. May the God of hope Fill each of you 
with all joy and all peace as you believe in him. Amen.